0: If you got a Bible, uh, you can open it up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been working our way, just started working our way through that book together as a church family. Um, And we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9 is where we're going to be reading this morning. And so if you have it, go ahead and open there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Peter writes these words. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, That is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, the older that I get, the more I realize just how important it is to fuel yourself with the proper nutrition for your body to function the way that God designed it to function. You gotta have fuel, right? You gotta have fuel in order for it to work the way that God intends it to work. Um, and the same is true in our lives as sojourners or exiles in this world. Uh, we saw several weeks ago that Peter writes to this group of Christians who are living as those who are resident aliens. They're living with a green card status in this world because their citizenship lies ultimately in heaven and not on this earth. And in order for us to walk through the seasons that we have to walk through as exiles or as sojourners or as resident aliens here in this world, we've got to be fueled by the proper nutrients in order to be able to, 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 to live as God would call us to live in, the, in this life that he's given us to live on, in this world. And so last week, we took a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, where uh, Kevin talked to us a lot about our hope. And this week, we come to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, where Peter reminds us about our joy. And now, these two things are interconnected because hope always produces joy. It always produces joy. When there's something that you're longing for, something that you're looking to, it always produces joy within your heart. And so this morning, we want to take a look at the source of this joy that Peter talks about. We'll take a look at the source, the occasion, the quality, and the result. These four (laughs) things we want to see. And we want to kind of press those a little bit and see what difference it makes in our lives when we have this kind of joy fueling us as we live as sojourners or exiles in this world. So the first, first things first, where does it come from? What is the source of this joy, this Christian joy that Peter says functions as fuel for us? And he says our joy, it comes from or it's rooted in God's work and not ours. Christian joy is always rooted in God's work and not ours. If you look at the this in verse 6 that we just read together, the this in verse 6 is referring back to everything Peter lines out in verses 3 to 5. And so the text that Kevin preached from last week in verses 3 to 5, we saw a reference to the things that God has done, the things that God is doing, and the things that God will do one day. If you look in verses 3 to 5, we saw what God has done. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's what God has done. He's brought us to life So where there was death, there is now life. Where there was darkness, there is now light. Where there was despair, now there is hope that we have. So what God has done, what he is doing, he says also in those verses that who by God's power are right now presently being guarded through faith. So God is guarding us for an inheritance that will one day come to us. So God, what has he done? He's caused us to come to life. What is he doing? He's guarding us and protecting us in this life that we're currently now living for what he will one day do. He born born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, verse 4, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's something that's coming over the horizon. Okay? Over the horizon, there is a day that's coming where God will do something. So God has done something, He is doing something, and He will do something one day. And Peter says that this in verse six is pointing back to everything that he just says in verses three to five. He says, in this, in what God has done, in what God is doing, and particularly in what God will do, you rejoice. There's a joy that's awakened within your heart As you look back to everything that God has done, bringing you from death to life, what God is doing now, guarding you for this inheritance that he's keeping in heaven for you and a joy that's born because you're looking forward to what God will do one day. What he will do one day. Peter says, our joy is not rooted in what we do, but it's rooted in what God has done, is doing, and one day, particularly one day, what he will do Our hope. Hope always produces joy. In fact, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote about this concept, he said this. He said, all joy, as distinct from mere pleasure, still more amusement, emphasizes our pilgrim status. It always reminds, always beckons, always awakens desire. Our best havings are wantings. Our best havings are wantings. And you found this to be true, haven't you? that what produces joy in you oftentimes is what you're looking forward to, what you're longing for. I found this to be true a couple of weeks ago. I had a really close friend over the course of the last eight or nine years, and she was getting married in Panama City, Florida. And she said, came to me several months back, and she said, hey, listen, I would love for you and your family to come down to Panama City with us and to form the wedding. And I said, well, let me pray about that, yes, Okay, <laughs> right, right. All, all accommodations, all airfare paid, right, I'm there, okay? And so I can remember weeks leading up to that trip, I can remember there's an anticipation. You guys have experienced that before, a week, you know, in those times leading up to a momentous occasion in your life, there's an anticipation, there's a longing that awakens within your heart, and there's a joy as you look forward to what's coming on the horizon, what's coming in the future, Lewis says, Our best wantings, the best things are the best havings. The best things that you have right now is what you want in the future, what you're longing for to come over the horizon one day. See, joy is awakened not by what we do, but by what God has done and particularly what He will do one day. Hope always awakens joy. That's where it comes from as a Christian. Notice the second thing that Peter tells us about this joy. Not only does he tell us the source of it, what it's rooted in, but he also tells us the occasion for it. And Peter says this joy as a Christian is what he would say is that even though and a so that kind of experience. Okay? It's an even though and so that kind of experience. When most of us think of grief and we think of joy, we think of them being mutually exclusive of one another. But what Peter teaches us here is that joy and grief are simultaneous experiences and not separate experiences. They are simultaneous with each other and not separate of each other. Most of us think of joy as something reserved for weddings and grief as something reserved for funerals, but Peter says in the midst of grief there is joy, and that's how life works. They're not mutually exclusive. Peter doesn't present a situation where you have grief but not joy, or you have joy but not grief. He presents a situation where you are rejoicing even though you're in the midst of hardship, even though... you're in the midst of difficulty, even though you're facing trials. Peter says, true Christian joy is an even though kind of experience. And so right now, even though you're facing trials, even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, Peter says, there's a joy that you're looking to because something is coming over the horizon one day. You know one day the sun is going to rise and its light is going to cast out all the darkness and all the despair and all the heartache and all the pain. You know that, and so you're looking for that. So even right now, as your heart is aching, it's rejoicing. They're a simultaneous experience, not a separate experience. That's what Peter tells us. So it's an even though kind of joy. And Peter says, even though for a little while, and Peter, for Peter to say for a little while, what he's talking about is not just like a month or a week or a day or an hour. He's talking about a lifetime. A lifetime in comparison to eternity. He's talking about a lifetime in comparison to eternity. Kind of what similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he talks about the light and momentary afflictions that he's encountering. And for Paul to say the light and momentary afflictions that he's encountering, Paul, you fast forward in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about a life filled with beatings, a life filled with shipwrecks, a life filled with imprisonments. And he's saying this light and momentary affliction, Peter says for a little while, it's a lifetime filled with all kinds of heartache, a lifetime filled with all kinds of hurt, a lifetime filled with all kinds of pain, but he says Christian joy is an even though kind of experience. And by various trials, what Peter's talking about is the full gambit of human experience in this life. So he's talking about everything from the slightest rolling of the eyes when you mention the name Jesus in your workplace. Like, there goes that guy again. Everything from the slightest rolling of the eyes To a spouse who doesn't respond the way that you would like in the context of your relationships, to a child who's living in rebellion, to the loss of a job, to threats of lawsuits, to the shrapnel of sin that you experience in the context of the brokenness of your family having a knife put to your throat, a gun put to your head, and a tumor found in your body. The full gambit of human experience, Paul says, are these various many-colored kinds of trials that you experience over the course of your life that provide the occasion for this even-though kind of experience that Peter says is true Christian joy. So it's an even though kind of experience, but it's also a so that kind of experience. Notice what Peter goes on to say in verse seven. In verse seven, Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now for Peter, gold is probably the most precious thing that he can think of, right? It's the most valuable commodity that comes to his mind as he's writing about faith. And Peter says, even gold, even the most valuable commodity on the face of the earth known to him in his time, even gold, he says, is put through the fire to purify it, to make it more precious, to show it more genuine. He says, as you put gold through the fire and it reaches its melting point, all the impurities, the dross ultimately floats to the surface and can be skimmed off, leaving behind something that is even more valuable. Even more valuable. Peter says that your faith is more precious than gold. Doesn't he say that in the text? He didn't just say your faith is as precious as gold, but he says your faith is more precious than the most valuable commodity on the face of the earth known to him in his time. And here's why. Because gold may make provision for you in this life, but faith will make provision for you in the life to come. As well as this life. Gold may make provision. Financial security may make provision for you in this life. But faith will make provision for you in this life and the life to come. And as the temperature rises, what happens is the genuineness of that faith gets tested Right? Is, it filled, is, it, is it a faith that has integrity to it? That no matter how hot the temperature gets, whenever the, 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 the friction between our convictions and the, the, the culture in which we live create that heat and the friction, the heat begins to rise, no matter how hot it gets, do we continue to cling to Jesus and throw ourselves on him and him alone, no matter how hard these various trials that we're encountering in this life become? It shows whether or not faith is really genuine. I was blown away several months ago in in February, mid-February. Many of you remember what took place on the shores of Libya as 21 Egyptian Christians were marched out beside the sea in orange jumpsuits and men with uh, with black hoods over their heads stood behind them and executed them by beheading them as they videotaped all of this and then (laughs) shot it out across the internet for the entire world to see. And I was blown away to hear one of the family members, one of the brothers of two of these Christian men who were killed because they were Christians, give an interview, an interview to a, 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 a television show in Egypt And when asked about the experience, listen to what he had to say. He said, ISIS gave us more than we asked when they didn't edit out the part where they declared their faith and called upon Jesus Christ. ISIS helped us strengthen our faith. Yes, believe me, I thank ISIS because they didn't cut the audio when they screamed declaring their faith. Believe me when I tell you that the people here are happy and congratulating one another for having so many from our village die as martyrs. We are proud of them. And to hear the brother of two of these men who were beheaded on account of their Christian faith. This light and momentary affliction is what Paul would call it. This, these various trials that have grieved them for a little while is what Peter says. But in the midst of, midst of this, Peter says... Uh, or these, this, this Egyptian Christian brother to these men who were killed says, listen, we are thankful to ISIS that they didn't cut the audio because at the end of their lives, these men were screaming out to Jesus, calling upon Jesus. And he says, their declaration of faith in their hour of death has strengthened our faith. To watch them encounter trial." To come to the end of their days and to see their time drawing near and still declare the praises of Jesus Christ. It has shown their faith and our faith to be genuine because I keep clinging to Jesus. And whether it's to that extreme or not, Peter says, True Christian joy is a so that kind of experience. Even though you're grieved with these various trials for a lifetime, they're producing something far more precious than the most valuable commodity on the face of the earth. A faith that is genuine. But notice one more thing about what Peter says in verse 7. He says, even though for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, as I read that, it raised this question, by whose necessity, who deems it necessary for us to encounter various trials? Who deems it necessary? Do our enemies deem it necessary? Do ISIS? Did ISIS deem it necessary? Does your spouse deem it necessary? Right? Are your ex deem it necessary as they fight you for custody? Do the leaders of our government and the executive, legislative, and judicial branches deem it necessary? Does your boss deem it necessary? Do the, does the mainstream media deem it necessary? Does your child in the rebellion deem it necessary? Does your insurance company, as you fight for the benefits that you've paid for all year long, deem it necessary? Does your family deem it necessary? Does Satan deem it necessary? Who deems it necessary? Let me ask you a few more questions. Who who deems it necessary to melt away all of your self-confidence? Who deems it necessary to strain out all of your independence? Who deems it necessary to purge you of all your self-reliance who deems it necessary to burn off and bring to the surface all of your self sufficiency? Who deems it necessary to refine and remove all of your autonomy and self-madeness? There's only one person who deems it necessary for the refinement of your faith: and that is God. God and God alone, not your neighbor who runs into your car, not your insurance company who denies your claim, not your family who sins against you, not your spouse, not your ex, not your kids. God deems it necessary for the refinement of your faith and to strip away every ounce of selfness about you. So at the end of the day, all you have to do is cling in faith to Jesus. God is the only one who deems it necessary. And what this means is that everything that you've heard about how it is God's will for you to always be promoted and never passed over. Or how it's always God's will for you to be respected and not maligned. Or how it's always God's will for you to be prosperous and never poor. For you to be well and never sick. Those things are not true. That God deems those things necessary in your life to burn away all the dross of your self confidence. That God deems those things necessary to lift to the surface all the impurities of your self-madeness. Like, I've accomplished these things, I've risen to this platform. God burns all that away through these various trials because you continue to look back to who God is and what he's done, not who you are and what you've done and rejoice in the midst of all, all of those trials. God deems it necessary. So Peter says that Christians are rejoicing in what will be one day, even though they are living in what is. Some of you, that's your experience right now. You're living in what is. And the only place that you're going to find joy is in what will be. and what will be. Now, Peter doesn't stop there. He also goes on to say that Christian joy, the quality of this joy, he says it's a weighty and wordless kind of experience. It's a weighty and wordless kind of experience. Look at what he says in verse 8. Peter says that our experience as elect exiles is characterized by a love for, a belief in, and a joy from Jesus, whom we have never seen but are longing for. And this joy in Jesus, he says, is inexpressible and filled with glory. In fact, he says it's so deep and it's so rich, you can't even put it into words. And it's so beautiful and it's so weighty that the only way he can describe it is to say it's glorious or it's filled with glory. Listen, on the way to Florida uh, last week, we were seated a few rows back from a screaming child. Uh, That was a lovely experience. A few rows back from a screaming child on an airplane for an hour and a half. Saving grace as a part of that experience was the fact that there was a man seated next to that young child across the aisle from him who, I believe it was David Bolton in disguise. <laughs> Some of you know David Bolton. He was a former elder here, had a big handlebar, mustache, tall, cowboy hat always, right? Um, but I believe it was because he, he looked so much like David Bolton, had the gray handlebar, mustache coming down, right? Um, you know, David Bolton's kind of like MacGyver meets country, right? He can do anything. And I, and I kid you not, there was, a, there was a moment in time where this man just kind of looked over at this child and they locked eyes. And the child just fell into this kind of hush for the rest of the flight. It was amazing. But the woman seated next to us, right, as, we, as she begins to dialogue with us about this screaming child a few rows up, she's like, where are you guys going? I said, well, we're going to Florida to see, uh, to, to perform a wedding. And so, you know, it comes out that I'm a pastor. So we start talking about that. And she's like, I was like, where are you going? She said, we're going to Florida for the birth of our first grandchild, and she starts talking about her grandchild that she has not yet seen, that she's waiting to hold. Right? And there's this excitement that she's bubbling with. And she, all this joy that's coming out of her heart. And as she talks about longing and waiting to get her hands on this little baby that's about to be born, it couldn't, I couldn't help but kind of think back to the experience of the birth of our two children. And to remember the flood of joy that came over my heart that first time that the nurses and the doctors said, "Here's your son. Here's your daughter." In that moment in that moment, I was speechless. <laughs> you don't have words to describe that kind of experience when you stand there, just blown away with your heart overflowing with joy that is so rich and so deep that you don't even have words to describe it. And that's what Peter is saying here. That this kind of joy that you rejoice in, even though and so that is a joy that you it's unspeakable. You don't even know how to phrase words to describe it to other people in the midst of your pain. As you look toward what God has done, is doing, and will do in the face of everything that you're encountering, as you look toward what will be in the reality of what is, there is this unspeakableness about the joy that floods your heart. Peter says, This joy, this joy is like just imagine the joy of holding your firstborn child. Combined with embracing your spouse on your wedding day. Combined with reconnecting with a friend of multiple decades. Combined with hugging your child when they return home from college or military service. And you see them for the first time in years. Combined with sitting next to your spouse and talking about the 50 years of shared life and experiences that you've had together. Imagine all this joy combined together and raised exponentially and never ending. That's a weighty. And wordless kind of joy that no fire, no trial in this life can smother. That's the kind of joy Peter's describing here. It's weighty and wordless. And notice, he says as well, what it produces the end of this joy. He says, The end of this joy is the salvation of your soul. Look at what he says in verse 8. He doesn't stop and say, though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and say, and then you get saved. He didn't stop there, does he? No, he goes on to say, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says that the kind of faith it saves is not one that it walks around like a kid, right? And my kids do this sometimes whenever they lose privileges in our home. They kind of walk around going, I'm so bored. I don't know what I'm gonna do, Right? so bored, there's nothing for me to do, right? Because I can't play on this video game right now, so there's nothing left in the house for me to do, right? Peter says, true Christian joy and true Christian faith is not a joy that looks at Jesus and goes, I'm so bored. But it's a joy that looks at Jesus and their heart is flooded with this weighty and wordless kind of joy. That's the kind of faith that saves. It's a joy that a faith that is filled with joy. Even though you have not seen him and you do not now see him, your heart is overflowing with joy. Peter says that's the kind of faith that obtains its end, it obtains its outcome, the salvation of your souls. See, if your experience as a professing Christian is just one that says this kind of lackadaisical belief that whenever the name of Jesus is mentioned and we sing about Jesus and we talk about Jesus and you hear about Jesus and you read about Jesus and there is not something that jumps in your heart. One of two things is happening. Either you, you're not a Christian and your professed faith is impotent to obtain its outcome or, or you're not looking at him Enough through the eyes of faith, through the lens of the good news of all that he has done for you. So Peter says, our joy is sourced in not what we do, but what he's done and will do. That our joy is an even though in the face of trials continue to have this joy. And so that it's producing, it's refining, it's drawing impurities out. And showing the genuineness of our faith that clings to him in the face of a lifetime of hardship. And it's a joy that is inexpressible. You can't even find words to describe it. And it's a faith filled with that kind of joy that actually saves. So what do you do with it? Two things before we close this morning. First of all, first of all, here's what I want to call you to do. I want to call you to look to Jesus for a longer joy. For a longer joy. Because see, if your joy is rooted in what you've done or what you will do, it's going to be kind of like a day lily. Look, in our house in Rowlett, before we moved out to Fate three years ago, we had these massive mounds of daylilies planted in our flower beds in the front of our home. And those daylilies would come up every spring, and they would produce these vibrant blooms, right? Vibrant and intense color. But they only lasted a day. (laughs) Hence their name, right? Daylily. And some of you, your joy is rooted and sourced in what you're doing or what you will do, not in what God has done and what he will do. And as a result, your joy is very short-lived. And you move from experience to experience to experience to experience to experience because you're not looking to what God's work, but your work as a source or foundation for your joy. You're looking to your achievements or your accomplishments for your joy. You're looking to what you will do one day, what you will achieve or accomplish one day for your joy. The promotion that you're going to receive one day, the person that you're going to meet one day, the relationship that you're going to enter into one day. You're looking to that to say joy will come when that happens, as opposed to looking to, to Christ and saying joy will come when he rises and returns. That's what I'm waiting for. That's where my hope is sourced. All that talk about hope last week, if your hope is sourced in what you will do one day, it's ultimately gonna be short-lived joy. But if your hope is sourced in what God will do one day, it will be a, a temporal joy that does not diminish in the face of trials, it will be a temporal joy that lasts a lifetime in the face of all kinds of grief. And it will be an eternal joy that doesn't come to an end when you draw your last breath. So look to Jesus for a longer joy. A longer joy. A longer joy than any other object of hope you might look to in this life can provide for you. But second of all, Look to Jesus for a better joy. Look to Jesus for a better joy. And here's, because some of us might go, well, man, you know, I find joy in all kinds of things in this life. I find joy in, in, in relationships that I have with friends or family or with uh, my kids or with my spouse. I find joy in my work and my vocation and the kind of difference that I'm making there. I find joy in the things that I'm able, uh, the kind of projects that I'm able to put my hands to and step back and finish and go, man, I finished that. I walk away from it, and it's done. I find joy in all kinds of experiences in this life, but there's a better joy than those. See, Jesus doesn't just offer us a longer joy. He offers us a better one. And here's why. Because our deepest joys are not found in things, but in persons. Our deepest joys are not found in things, but in persons. This wedding a couple of days ago sat uh, in a a living room filled with all the bride's friends and family. And they were all sitting around talking and carrying on and interacting and getting to know each other, sharing stories and experiences. And she sat back at one moment and she just kind of took it all in of all these people that have been so influential and shaped her life to where she is today. And they're all getting to know each other, coming together and connecting. And she sat back and she said, my heart is full. You ever had one of those experiences? You sit back and you go, my heart is full. Why? Because you're surrounded by people and your deepest joys aren't in things like new electronics or new cars or new homes, but your deepest joys are in people. They're in people. That's why you have that sense that your heart is full when you're connected to people. People. That's why your heart is full when your child returns home from college or military service. That's why your heart is full when you embrace your spouse on your wedding day. That's why your heart is full when you hold that child for the very first time. That's why your heart is full. Because our deepest joys are rooted in people, not things. Not things. And if that's true, if that's true, then our deepest joy can only be found in the highest person. Our deepest joy can only be found in the highest person. And who is higher? Who is greater? Who is more majestic? Who is more glorious than Jesus? And the response of the scriptures is no one. There is none higher. There is none more glorious. There is none more majestic than him. And so Jesus offers not only only a longer joy, but a better joy. Because there is no other relationship that you might look to to find the same richness of joy as what you can find in Christ. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said years ago, He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And see, if you're looking to streams, or if you're looking to drops, or if you're looking to scattered beams, or if you're looking, if you're looking to the shadow to find your best joy it will always fall short because you're not looking to the substance, to the sun, to the ocean, or to the fountain. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Your best joy is only found in him. And so that when the name of Jesus is spoken, there is something that leaps within you. And I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he writes about these experiences of these four kids who get sucked into Narnia, this land of fantasy. And before they meet the great king of Narnia, Aslan, they hear about him. They hear about him first before they ever see him. And when they hear about him from the mouths of the beavers, (laughs) listen to what Lewis describes in chapter 7. The beavers say, they say, Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now, he says, a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. He goes on to say, At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Remember that experience as a kid? You wake up in the morning and it's Christmas. You wake up in the morning and it's the first day of summer vacation. There's a joy. Why? Because there's an anticipation that something's coming. When when you think on Jesus, when you hear about Jesus, is there something that leaps within you? If not, I pray that there would be. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you would help us by your grace, to look to your Son, not only for a longer joy, not only for a longer joy that would last not only in this age but the age to come, but for a better joy here and now. And even though we have not seen him, God, would you awaken within us a love for him? And even though we do not now see him, would you awaken within us a faith that is filled with an unspeakable kind of joy that we can't even put words to because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Would you remove the scales from our eyes that we might see clearly? Father, we know that the God of this age, as Paul says in first second Corinthians, has blinded the God, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. But for us who have faith in Christ, those scales have been removed and we're able to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of your son. And I pray that there would be something that would leap within our hearts so that no matter how painful, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult the various trials that we face in this momentary existence that we have in light of eternity, Father, I pray. I pray that we would look to what you will do to find a joy that cannot be smothered in the midst of our trials. But that our faith will be found genuine because it's filled with joy. That lasts from this age to the next and is qualitatively better here and now than anything that we could find our joy in. So, Father, now as we sing together, would you awaken a love and a joy at the name of Jesus, we pray in his name.